Good afternoon. I'm Shelby Herbert. Welcome to Midday Magazine for Friday, February 17th. A a legislative resolution in support of Alaska's salmon troll fleet has cleared its first hurdle, although it has a ways to go before seeing a full vote of the Alaska House and Senate. House Joint Resolution 5 is the first piece of legislation introduced by Sitka Representative Rebecca Himshoot, who was elected to a first term last November and was sworn in this past January. Robert Woolsey reports from Sitka. House Joint Resolution 5 was heard in the House Special Fisheries Committee on February 14th, Valentine's Day. Representative Hemshoot used the day as a springboard to focus attention on Southeast trollers whose livelihood has been jeopardized by a lawsuit in the federal court in Seattle. I want to start by wishing everyone a happy Valentine's Day. And if there's one thing Alaskans love, it's our fishermen. So we're going to talk about some fishermen today. Hemshoot and co-sponsor Ketchikan Representative Dan Ortez are the only two Southeast Alaskans on the Special Fisheries Committee. Himshoot explained the significance of the troll fleet to the other members. You'll find trollers in every community of Southeast Alaska. I don't know if there's a community without at least one troller, no matter how small the community. So it's a, a very important fishery for Southeast Alaska. Um, and 85% of the trollers in the fleet are Alaska residents. So these are people who are hook and line fishing. So when they put their line in the water, it's a very sustainable fishery. They're going to pull up a salmon. This incredible homegrown fleet of fishermen doing the hard work that brings in about $85 million to our economy in Southeast Alaska is under attack, and they've been attacked by the Wild Fish Conservancy. Um, There's a lawsuit that started in 2019, and this resolution is going to um, urge state and federal agencies to continue defending our trollers. Although the Southeast King Salmon Fishery is the target of the lawsuit, the defendant is the National Marine Fisheries Service, which oversees the management of the nation's commercial fisheries. In broad terms, the Wild Fish Conservancy argues that NIMPS violated the Endangered Species Act when it failed to fully account for the impact of Alaska trolling on the food supply of a population of endangered killer whales in Puget Sound. Although experts believe that NIMPS can correct this supposed error, it's now in the hands of a federal judge in Washington whether or not to shut down trolling for king salmon in Alaska until it's remedied. Other members of the committee tried to tease out a better understanding of the problem. Committee Chair Sarah Vance of Homer asked Alaska Trollers Association Director Amy Doherty if harm to killer whales was an ongoing concern. Has there been concerns about um, impact to the orcas prior to this? Never. In fact, um, it's, it's our understanding that every other orca population up and down the coast is healthy and, in fact, increasing, except for this localized Puget Sound population. This is probably the most incongruent aspect of the lawsuit for trollers who regard themselves as an environmentally sensitive fishery. Shutting down commercial trolling for king salmon in Alaska may not have any effect at all on killer whales in Puget Sound. Sitka troller, environmentalist, and fisheries advocate Eric Jordan could barely contain his frustration. This existential threat to close down our southeast troll fishery in a fundraising charade by the Wild Fish Conservancy is a brutal assault on us that won't save one orca. 
It is the most vicious, misguided assault I have witnessed in a lifetime of experience with fisheries conflicts. Tad Fujioka, board chair of the Seafood Producers Cooperative in Sitka, argued that the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit failed to accurately trace the problem for Puget Sound's killer whales. If it did, the line would lead right back to Puget Sound. The black salmon isn't really the problem that the southern resident killer whales face. Um, if it was, we wouldn't see that the uh, Alaskan and British Columbia orca pods growing so steadily. The real problem for southern residents is the pollution in Puget Sound. You know, there's five million people that live in the Puget Sound area. With all the heavy pollution and road runoff, it makes the local fish toxic. The Washington Department of Health recommends that people eat no more than two servings of Puget Sound king salmon per month. And of course, the local killer whales eat a whole lot more than that. And that's made them some of the most contaminated marine mammals anywhere in the world. The House Special Fisheries Committee unanimously passed House Joint Resolution 5 out of committee. Its next stop is the Rules Committee, where it could be scheduled for a floor vote. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Robert Woolsey. The U.S. District Court of Western Washington could issue a final report and recommendation on the Wild Fish Conservancy lawsuit any day. Additional reporting on this story, including comment from the Conservancy, is coming shortly from Petersburg. Petersburg's Early Childhood Education Task Force met Wednesday evening to discuss a collaboration with the Boys and Girls Clubs Alaska. The organization is interested in restarting programming in southeast Alaska, including Petersburg. The clubs would offer after-school programming for ages 5 and up. There could also be activities before the school day or during summer days. The programming would be free to the community. The organization would pay wages for up to two staff and a youth mentor who could all be hired locally. Chelsea Tremblay is head of Petersburg's task force. She says after-school hours can be a particularly tricky time for some kids. They are sometimes unsupervised before their caregivers are done with work. According to the task force, kids tend to get in trouble during those after-school hours. So, Tremblay says, that's a great time to offer a warm space with adult supervision. Petersburg would need to provide a venue, a volunteer advisory committee, and some storage for supplies. The task force is willing, is talking with two groups who might be open to hosting in their buildings. Petersburg would also likely need money for supplies to start the program and for venue re- rental if it's not part of an in-kind donation. The task force is hoping not to require borough funding, but they could use some of the federal COVID relief funds already earmarked for the task force. The Boys and Girls Clubs last signed a contract to provide services to Petersburg in 2010. In that contract, the organization said its aims were to reduce youth delinquency and suicide in Petersburg while improving self-confidence and encourage healthy choices for youth. The Early Childhood Education Task Force will be sending a survey to parents soon attached to, attached to a school district bulletin. The survey will gauge interest in the program. It will ask parents if they're interested in free after-school care for their kids from the organization and whether they'd be interested in volunteering on the advisory board. The task force is hoping to get the program started this summer or fall. 
The Petersburg Indian Association held a work session on Wednesday to discuss plans for the tribe's COVID-19 relief funds. The American Rescue Plan Act, or ARPA, was signed into law in 2021 to provide financial relief in the wake of the pandemic. According to Chris Wright, PIA's tribal administrator, the tribe was awarded $4.5 million in ARPA funds. To date, they have almost $4 million left, and they have to decide how to spend it all before December of next year. In PIA's work session, the Tribal Council heard proposals from community members on how the funds should be used. Janine Gibbons suggested spending the money on cultural projects. Her proposal includes building a longhouse and a carving shed on Sandy Beach, as well as about a dozen smaller projects around the island. Resident Nathan Lopez presented ideas on culture and language revitalization as well. But he also proposed spending the ARPA money on professional development projects, such as launching a class for new business owners. Tribal Administrator Chad Wright spoke last. His ideas steered towards building economic sovereignty for the tribe. He asked the council to use the funds to purchase parcels of land to be placed in a federal trust. He suggested that PIA could build housing or small businesses on these parcels. During discussion, the council talked about prioritizing projects that would build revenue for the tribe. Council President Chris Morrison cited PIA's last survey of tribal citizens who were asked about their funding priorities. It ranked housing issues in the highest level of importance. But several attendees pointed out that the survey was completed in 2016 and may no no longer be relevant. There was also pushback from PIA members who thought that the money would be better spent on cultural projects, which, they said, could strengthen the community and drive tourism to Petersburg. The council hopes to reach a final decision at the next PIA meeting, which is scheduled for next Tuesday. President Joe Biden gave a quick briefing on three unidentified aerial objects shot down by military fighter jets, one over Alaska's Arctic coast, another over Canada's Yukon Territory, and a third over Lake Huron, shootdowns that followed the downing of a Chinese surveillance balloon over the Atlantic Ocean. Biden said there's been no determination yet on what these objects were, but the United States acted out of an abundance of caution. Nothing right now suggests they were related to China's spy balloon program or that they were surveillance vehicles from other any other country. The intelligence community's current assessment is that these three objects were most likely balloons tied to private companies recreation or research institutions studying weather or conducting other scientific research. Biden said his administration is still working to recover the objects and examine them. He didn't suggest there was a connection between those objects and the Chinese balloon or say whether they were from other countries. Biden did say his administration will come up with tighter rules on how to deal with these flying objects and how to better distinguish them from those that pose a threat. But make no mistake, if any object presents a threat to the safety and security of the American people, I will take it down. I'll be sharing with Congress these classified policy parameters when they are completed 
and uh, they'll remain classified so we don't give our roadmap to our enemies to try to evade our defenses. Biden said his national security director is working on some new policies to develop a better inventory of unmanned objects flying in U.S. airspace, as well as improve the ability to detect them. The president said the United States will work towards global norms in regulating these aerial objects. He also said he planned to stay in communication with the president of China. Alaskans across the state yesterday celebrated Elizabeth Paratrovich Day in honor of the Thlinkit woman whose speech before the Alaska Territorial Legislature changed the course of history. The year was 1945 when the legislator debated the nation's first anti-discrimination law. The turning point came when Paratrovich stood up to a senator who demanded to know why people barely out of savagery could be considered equal. I would not have expected that I, who am barely out of savagery, would have to remind gentlemen with 5,000 years of recorded civilization behind them of our Bill of Rights. These are words written and performed by actress Diane Benson, who used newspaper and witness accounts to reconstruct Paratrovich's speech, words that even today resonate with her granddaughter, Betsy. Just reading it just kind of sends shivers through your body just at how well-spoken she was and how she basically called out people that didn't want to vote in favor for the law and did so so eloquently. The anti-discrimination bill was signed into law on February 16, 1945, almost 80 years ago, a day that years later became Elizabeth Paratrovich Day. Betsy Paratrovich says many other Alaska natives fought alongside her grandmother and her grandfather, Roy. But somehow it was Elizabeth Paratrovich's story that became the defining moment, one that offered inspiration at a time when there was little hope. Our people need heroes, and we were not permitted to have them for many years. Paratrovich says she's glad to see growing interest in the Alaska Native Civil Rights Movement and the hunger to learn more about a time when Native children were sent to segregated schools, when families were shunned in white neighborhoods and couldn't eat at restaurants where there were signs that said, no dogs, no natives, all forms of discrimination that became illegal on that day in 1945. City leaders expect 1.6 million passengers to visit Juneau this summer. That's nearly 50% more than last year. If that expectation becomes reality, those visitors would generate more than $21 million in revenue through fees charged to cruise ships. Juneau tourism manager Alexandra Pierce has proposed putting that money towards a range of city services and projects, including the Seawalk, Marine Park, and the proposed Capital Civic Center. A 2019 settlement agreement with the Cruise Lines International Association limits how the city can spend those fees. We're pretty encumbered on how we can spend the funds, but we also want to make sure that we're spending them in a way that not only supports the visitor industry, but also creates lasting assets for the community. 
um, which is why something like the seawalk is a major priority. Some of the allocations came from the pro- from project proposals submitted by city departments and the public in December. For example, Capital Transit proposed adding more signs to the transit sem- center to help tourists use city buses. An interesting thing that's happened in the last year is um, an uptick in the number of tourists using the city bus. And so we've realized that we need to... Um, improve signage and wayfinding for that new increased use. Juno residents can email their comments to Pierce or mail them to the city manager's office until March 17th. The proposed list is available on the city's website. Those comments will be submitted along with the new, the proposed list to the Juno Assembly's Finance Committee. The Assembly will consider the final list during its budget cycle. For KFSK, I'm Shelby Herbert. Coming up, local and marine weather.